Thank you for joining us for State of the Art Southern Illinois. We are so excited about our guest today. He is an ACM Male Vocalist of the Year, two-time CMA Male Vocalist of the Year, and Grammy Award-winning Lee Greenwood. In addition to God Bless the USA, he's also had seven number one hits and 25 charting singles. We're excited to hear about his career, how he got started, and how he moved throughout his career and what that's meant for him in this country. Welcome to State of the Art Southern Illinois. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Lee Greenwood. Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Josh. Great to be on the podcast with you at State of the Arts. So let's start in the beginning. What kind of musical influences did you have as a kid? Like what music was playing in the house whenever you were growing up? Well, we didn't have any music playing in the house. Uh, you got to remember how old I am. Uh, we had a radio <clears throat> and very, rarely was it on. It was a big tall box with three knobs on it. And, uh, my mother was a musician in the 40s, however, I will say that. We had a piano in the house, and if we can go all the way back to 78 size records, those are the only ones that were available to play on a phonograph. And so my mother had a collection of those, not too many, but a few, and because you had to buy them, and so they were very expensive. Um, I think the first song that I listened to was uh, Stan Kenton Jazz. Uh, he was the father of American jazz. And I remember the song very well called Artistry and Rhythm. You can Google it probably. I don't know if you can, it would ever play it for you because it was so old. But I'm sure if you find the history of Stan Kenton, you'll find that song. And I picked it out on the piano by ear until I could play it all. Um, I think I was like uh, seven, eight, nine by that time. And, uh, and I was allowed to, to play the music on the, on the piano uh, as I wanted to. Now, as I went through school... During my junior high school years, I formed my own band called the Moonbeams, and we were like a sit-down band with a bandstand in front of you, um, and uh, each player had one, and, and we put the, the music orcs uh, that we'd buy at the music store, and we had, uh, I think it was sax, a trumpet, um, maybe another trumpet, I don't remember. My sister played piano as well, Patricia, who's still alive and three years older than I am. Um, throughout junior high school, I played a few dances with that kind of band, made 5 $6 a night. And then, um, so I was getting an influence of orchestration. In those days, the big bands were very important. Um, you couldn't afford that now, in, in these days. Very few uh, artists can actually afford a huge band, unless you're a superstar, and you bring in 30 musicians to play. But that's, and that's the way it was in those days. So my musical influence began early on as a sax player, and, a, and I didn't really have much experience as a piano player yet. Um, through high school, I, my parents had moved and my mother remarried, um, and we, um, I formed a Dixieland band in Southern California where I went to high school in Anaheim, and we were, I, I actually played uh, baritone saxophone in the Keystone Cops Quartet in Disneyland um, as it opened in 1955. So now I had some experience in a different kind of music, um, Dixieland, and I, and I loved it, actually. It's very close to bluegrass, if, if you can kind of remember how the Irish that came to America and brought that music here, developed in the hills of Virginia and North Carolina and East Tennessee, um, and that music sort of seeped into me as well. I, I, I love to play that. 
And then I discovered rock and roll, and I, I switched from the alto and the soprano saxophone to the tenor saxophone. And the tenor is more of a, a instrument you can play in a variety of music. And during my high school years, now, of course, you're talking about the emergence of the Beatles. Uh, of course, Jerry Lee Lewis and rock and roll and Elvis Presley, heavily influenced by that. And in those days, they had a tenor saxophone on, on every rock and roll record. And so before I graduated high school, I formed another band uh, called the Apollos. And my senior year, we were playing in nightclubs. I guess I was 16 at the time. And, uh, and now I'm being influenced by a variety of, of artists. And not, yes, not yet as a singer, although I admired the music of the rhythm and blues artists like uh, Peeble Bryson and Sam Cooke and Ray Charles. Um, certainly at that point, I began to listen to country. Uh, I was singing in church at the time, so a gospel background. And I sang Old Holy Night for the first time, I think, when I was 15 in the First Baptist Church in North Sacramento, California, where I was raised on a sharecropper's farm by my grandparents. And so um, leaving for Nevada at the age of 17, I graduated high school, and I settled in Reno first, Lake Tahoe, and then Las Vegas. Opened the Stardust Hotel when I just turned 18, and uh, with my own band, the uh, Apollos, and we worked for a year there before I decided that I wasn't learning anything from the group. And I, uh, I quit the group and started learning uh, all the things I'd learned in my senior year in high school, which was music theory, uh, how to play percussion. I was the drum major of my high school band. I, was, uh, uh, I played timpani in the symphony orchestra, and, uh, and I was in the choir. Now my voice began to develop. And, uh, and as a singer, uh, I became the lead singer in the Apollos at the Stardust Hotel for a year. And then I, I, I kind of just like became a side musician for the next 10, 15 years. And um, what, what kind of music you, were you? I worked with Rat Pack. I worked with Elvis Presley and everybody at the, uh, at the hotel. So we can, we can move on from there if you like. Okay. Yeah. Um, w- really quick. What? What type of music, what kind of songs were you doing with the Apollos? Well, the first song I ever sang was Mac the Knife uh, from Bobby Duran, and I, I really loved his style. Um, so it's a, it was a combination of what we called in those days pop music. Country was even considered pop music during those days. The, if you remember the song Smoke, Smoke, Smoke That Cigarette, it was considered a big pop hit. Uh, there was no division really yet in music between R&B and, and adult contemporary or uh, country and gospel and rock. Those divisions came during the Beatle era, and, uh, and, and we began to decide what kind of music made the culture of America. Okay. So you started playing and uh, kind of going off on your own as a side musician, playing with all these giant stars, and then... Um, in 79, Larry McFadden discovered you. Um, and is that when you started shifting towards playing country music? Not yet. Um, Larry was the band leader for Mel Tillis, uh, who had a great band called the Statesiders. And I, at the time, had shifted from a band and backing up other musicians uh, to playing piano bar. And the reason I did that is because it helped my writing. And um, in the last two years before I moved to Nashville, I was playing at the Tropicana Hotel in a beautiful setting called the Atrium Lounge, and it was my room. And I could, 
I, I would write a song, take it to work that night, and play it on the piano for all the people who would be listening. I had about 10 tables in front of me and a very large horseshoe bar that circumvented my, uh, my atrium. Uh, and the Follies Bergere was up on my right and the ice cream parlor down on my left, so it was a three-level place. It was just a very magic environment. And I remember Larry, uh, at the time, uh, was at the Frontier Hotel with Mel Tillis and his band, and Dottie West was opening for them with her band. And I went over to, to watch them perform, and, and at that point, I really started focusing on Nashville uh, because they were basically saying, we love your style. It's a combination of pop and rhythm and blues and country, and we think you could be a star there. And so that's, it took about a three-year process before I finally went to Nashville and made a couple demos. I signed with BMI, the publishing company, uh, and I, I, I joined an agency that would start booking me for the next five or six years. And, and when I, I, I put my feet in the ground in Nashville, and it happened immediately at MCA Records. And so you then launched in and started your your country career, which was illustrious from the beginning. You had seven number one songs, twenty five singles that charted. Um, what was the song selection like going into that? Um, and as a song as a songwriter, what kind of insight did you have into song selection uh, with your songwriter background? Well, as a stroke of luck, while I was still living in, the, in Nevada, I actually called uh, a guy named Jerry Crutchfield. And Jerry Crutchfield had produced a number of artists, including Tanya Tucker, and he had several double awards producing um, Christian singers. And one song in particular he produced called Please Come to Boston was by Dave Loggins from East Tennessee. It was a number one song. And when I heard that song on the radio for the first time, in Nevada, I called Jerry Crutchfield and asked him for an audition. He agreed, flew to Nevada, and we became instant friends. We made a couple of demos, and that's what garnered me the position at MCA Records. Jerry, at the time, was the head of MCA Music, which gave him access to almost any song that was written in Nashville. And we would compile um, a, a, a large pile of, uh, of, of demos that was written by all Nashville artists, and, and also put my songs in the pile and if and, and I'm proudly say that I had at least one song in the first 10 albums uh, of every of every album uh, that I just wrote myself one of those of course was God bless you I say but that was 19 not was not not until 1984 uh, until we had that album you got a good love coming prior to that we would choose whatever songs we thought was the best for my career and Jerry and I worked it solidly as a team uh, his brother, Jan Crutchfield, wrote my first hit, It Turns Me Inside Out, and two others that would follow, She's Lion and Going, Going, Gone, which was my first number one song in country music. Both Jerry and Jan, unfortunately, now are gone. We lost Jerry earlier this year. So uh, it, it's interesting, as I look back on my 40 years of uh, traveling as a, as an artist, um, it, was, it was a great, magical time. Yeah, and you... Um... Some additional of those hits are like Ring on Her Finger, Time on Her Hands, I Don't Mind the Thorns If You're the Rose, Somebody's Gotta Love You, Gonna Love You, um, You've Got a Good Love Coming, Fool's Gold, Morning Ride, and then you also had some crossover hits outside of country music with Touch and Go Crazy, IOU, which you won a Grammy for, and a duet with Barbara Mandrell, which is To Me. Um, and what did the success, what did your crossover success mean to you at that point? Um, 
you at that whenever that happened, you had already had ACM and CMA awards for vocalist of the year. Um, and then you won a Grammy for a crossover hit. What did that crossover success mean for you? Um, I wrote the uh, title song for the Barbara Mandrell Lee Greenwood duet album called We Were Meant for Each Other. I, I would have liked that to have been one of the nominations for Song of the Year, but it did not get there. I wrote a song called A Love Song for Kenny Rogers early on before I had my first album. And that went number one around the world. And it just gave me a lot of encouragement to continue writing and, and write more. Of course, USA would come on, would come along in 1983 and recorded in 1984 on the album, You've Got a Good Love Coming. However, we already made a video for You've Got a Good Love Coming in the London train station, and, and that, would, that was going to be released when Universal made the call to release God Bless the USA instead. So it, when I began to, to think about how my writing would develop, I was influenced by the songs that we recorded that were written by other artists. Naturally, I wanted to stay in the pocket. I wanted to stay, two reasons. I wanted to, to, to make sure we made a hit for radio, and we made a hit for the fans, because in those days, radio was king, and, and the fans would, um, would be instrumental in the success of a record, because radio stations would canvas and pull fans by having call-ins, and then that would depend whether or not your record would um, excel and, and climb up the charts at their individual station. And then Billboard would canvas all of the radio stations that supplied that information to them, and then your song would climb up the charts. It was, it was an arduous process, and we were in competition with a great many country artists, some of them on my label, which included the Oak Ridge Boys, Barbara Mandrell, George Strait, and Reba McIntyre. So not just competing with my own label for position on the charts. So it was very difficult getting there. Uh, with a number one song, but we just kept pursuing the best possible music we could choose. And if it wasn't my song, then we would choose the best song for my career. But it did inspire my writing, and uh, and I think it helped me overall position myself within country music, not being from the South. And I mean, let's. You are obviously best known for God Bless the USA. Um, would you mind talking to us a little bit about that writing process? Like what? What space were you in? What was happening around you when, when that, whenever that song finally went from pen to paper? Yes. The backstory is that I was signed at MCA Records as an artist and cross-collateralized with MCA Music so that they would recoup any processes of recording. And we had very expensive musicians, studios, uh, and it took me a while to recoup all of that, that money. The only reason I was signed at MCA Records was because I was a touring artist. I wanted to get out on the road, and, uh, and we did. And like many of the artists that would pursue their record career with a fervor, we toured a great deal for the first three or four years, almost 300 days a year. Um, and that's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of your personal life in order to find the fans and, and continue to have them help you have hit record after hit record after hit record. So we wrote all of the music that I was writing at the time on my bus. There was no time to write at home. The only time I would have at home would, would be to get in the studio, record 10 songs, because it was two albums a year. That was what was required uh, for my contract. And we had first just four singles that was, that was asked to come up. It was Inside Out, 
um, Ring on Her Finger, Time on Her Hands, our second hit, written by Marion Kennedy, Pam Rose, and Don Goodman, which also wrote Dixie Road the same afternoon. That wasn't on the first album, however. The third hit was Ain't No Trick, and, uh, and I think the fourth hit, I'm not sure, but I believe it was She's Lying. On the Somebody's Gonna Love You album, which produced not only I.O.U., uh, which got us a Grammy, written by Carrie Trader and Austin Roberts, but we also recorded The Wind Beneath My Wings, which was a choice to release um, until Gary Morris released it as well in country. And then it was released by five, five other artists and in different genres. So we never really got to the point where we released Wind Beneath My Wings for a charted single. We did release it, however, in England, and that was the name of our British album, Wind Beneath My Wings by Lee Greenwood. So we're, we're talking about how that helped me write God Bless USA? Mm -hmm. Not really. I, I wanted to write a song about my country all the years that I was growing up in California, the times that I was performing in Nevada, watching Elvis Presley sing the trilogy and his tribute to America. And he was very religious, by the way. He could have been a preacher. And, and I just thought, you know, someday I'll either do the trilogy as my closer or I'll write my own song. And I did. I finally wrote my own song, which was my closer. I had no idea it would be eventually, however, America's anthem. And and what has what has that meant to you? The way that the way that the country as a whole, politicians, other artists, um, have embraced "God Bless the USA" in in some of the most tumultuous times in our country, in times of such turmoil that that. God Bless the USA has been a ballad that, that the country just wraps its arms around for comfort. Well, those things happen um, just generically. I, you know, you have to remember that God Bless the USA was on a country album called You Got a Good Love Coming. The song was Song of the Year in 1985 at the CMA. That's no accident. It's just, it was popular with the country fans. Moving beyond that, it was the song of the Gulf War for General Schwarzkopf. They played it before they went to war in the war room. And that gave me the military audience. Beyond that, uh, Katrina, it was used as a song for hope and recovery. And then a song for unity after the attack on America in 2001. So moving almost 20 years forward, in 2020 during the pandemic, we re-recorded God Bless USA for the third time. And this time, it was with an a cappella group called Home Free and United States Air Force Singers. And... Uh, Two-thirds of the nation saw that. Over 200,000 people had views on that particular recording. So it, it became in America's fiber just a little at a time, although it seemed like a lot for me at a time. You know, we're over 330 million people, so that, so that if you hit 30 or 40 million people at a time and it goes viral, you think, well, that's the end of that, uh, and, and it won't be heard again. And then circumstances within our country and internationally made the song more important to more Americans. And so it has meant a great deal to me to know that I've done something good for my country. And uh, I think we can all 100% agree with that, that because that song has been there for all of us. Um, what would you say, out of everything that's happened with that song, what is the most proud moment that you recall in connection to that song? Well, Josh, apples and oranges. Uh, and the reason I say that is because I sang at two um, presidential inaugurations, both at the Lincoln Memorial. Um, I performed on the Nimitz aircraft career in the Persian Gulf during a time of conflict. 
um, at the old sailors and soldiers home in New York when uh, an old soldier came and pinned his purple heart on me. Um, at the CMA when I sang it for the final time when it was Song of the Year for the Country Music Association. Um, the 50-year anniversary of the CMA when I sang it with Brad Paisley and Carrie Underwood live on television. I, there, there are just so many instances. Uh, I have two sons that are 27 and 23, and um, three years ago we sang for the Tennessee Titans halftime, and both my sons got to sing it with me, and that's the only time we've ever sang together. So, so yes, there, there's many moments that are in my vivid memory, uh, but I don't think there's one that is outstanding that just says, that's the one. Well, all of those being such big, amazing moments, I can't imagine choosing one. Um, and uh, the the last one that you shared with us, with being able to sing it with your sons, that's that sounds incredible as well. It was. Um, now, uh, there's... Uh, we're a theater here in uh, Marion, Illinois, and so we have a connection to the National Endowment for the Arts. And so I want to ask you about your time with the National Endowment of the Arts. Um, George W. Bush initially appointed you to the National Endowment for the Arts Council in 2008. Um, what does that entail? What is What does it mean to be on the National Endowment for the Arts Council? It was my belief, and I said this in a statement when I was sworn in um, and, and uh, ratified by the Senate, because it's a 14-member council, six-year appointment, and I said, I do believe that music um, is the one art, besides ballet, uh, that describes American culture. And I said, as we move through time and music changes, we have to make sure we preserve and identify the music of, its, of, of each era. And I think we've done a good job of that. But we met two times a year for, for all of those years. And by the way, I was just finally let go by the Biden administration after all of my time serving because I was never replaced since they had no time to ratify any replacement, nor did any president, including uh, the uh, uh, the Obama administration and the Trump administration. They, I served through all of those uh, administrations, and proudly so. I, I valued the time there. I did it as all I could to make sure we made choices that spent the American tax dollars properly uh, in preserving artistic achievements in a varied uh, of, uh, of, of, of uh, genres, whether it be dance, art, painting, music, whatever it was, and spending, you know, the United States money in a, in a very important way. I met a lot of great people who served on the council, uh, who all now have been replaced with me, and, um, and they were lifelike friendships. So it was, it was fun to do, it was important to do, and, uh, and I thought I did a good job. Well, I, I thank you for your time on that and for your dedication to the further development and funding of the arts in this country. Um, it, it all means so much um, to, to help to continue to curate those opportunities. So thank you so much for your time with that. Um, You're welcome. Thank you, Josh. Um, as, as, we, as we kind of wrap up, what should fans expect whenever they come and see you here on May 14th at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center? Well, thanks for asking that. I, I, I think it's really cool that, um, you know, this is the 40 Years of Hits tour where we've had so many crests for songs, and, and most of the time we'll do an hour to an hour and a half show. Um, I think they've requested that as well, probably a 90-minute show. Uh, Showtime is at 9 o'clock at the um, Cultural 
civic center, cultural, uh, the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. And um, we have an interactive show that people can, um, I, I want them to let me know when they recognize my musical uh, discography and, uh, and songs that were important in their life, because I know there was a bunch. So it, I have a few surprises, and it'll be, uh, it'll be a mix of, of things that people uh, hopefully will be entertained by, because I think that's important, not just play the music. Yeah, and so there's some storytelling aspects to your show as well, to where you, you kind of talk to the audience and, and, and let them know as you go through the hits as well, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, again, thank you so much for your time today. Um, mm-hmm. We really look forward to, to seeing you here um, and seeing you here in Marion. Uh, thank you for joining us today. It has been eye-opening. One of my favorite things that I've come out of this with was that you that you uh, released Wind Beneath My Wings as an album title in the UK as well. That that kind of, that was a really interesting little bit of information in, in all of that. And it was a, it was a hit there. And uh, as a matter of fact, I had an audience with Margaret Thatcher, uh, Prime Minister of, of, of uh, England, during the Ronald Reagan 80th birthday party in Los Angeles. And she enlightened me that she had my album in her, in her library. That's incredible. Yeah, that was nice. Again, thank you for your time today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me on State of the Arts Podcast. Thank you for joining us for State of the Arts Southern Illinois, a podcast by the Marion Cultural and Civic Center, featuring local artists, artisans, musicians, arts organizations, and arts events here in Southern Illinois as well as national touring acts coming to the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. Join us here every Thursday morning for State of the Arts, Southern Illinois.